As we continue our study this morning of the Christian home, the biblical family, let me invite you to begin with me today in the first letter of the Apostle Peter and the third chapter. Quite near the end of the New Testament, 1 Peter 3, and we will read verses 1 through 6. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. So, Father, I pray that you would work today so that the women in this room who are wives and the women in this room who will be wives will be able to do what is right without being frightened by any fear. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we consider this morning God's word to wives, it's important, once again, just briefly to remind the rest of us that God has a word for us today as well. For if you're not a wife, young ladies, there's a good chance that you will one day be one. And you're going to need to know ahead of time what God has designed for you in marriage and what God has designed you for as a woman so that you don't go into your marriage with all the wrong expectations. And so I hope that you girls and you single women will listen intently today, even if you're not married yet. And if you're no longer a young lady this morning, such that marriage may no longer be in your future, or of course if you're not a female at all, the passages at which we will look today, as we said last week with the passages about husbands, these passages can be a paradigm for prayer, for you to pray for all the wives and future wives around you, your daughters, your daughters-in-law, your future daughters or daughters-in-law, the women in these pews, and so on. And remember, husbands especially, as I counseled your wives last week, not to use today's sermon as fuel to go home and critique your wife, but rather as fodder for you to pray for her. And then finally, remember, as we shall see, that the wife is a portrait of the church in her relationship to Christ. And that is a relationship that everyone needs to understand, whether they're involved in the marital portrait as a wife or not. And so I hope you'll listen for that as well. And with all that said, with the knowledge that there's something today for all of us, let's get down to that something. Let's get right to the biblical teachings on the role of the wife. Now, last week we looked at husbands and we spoke about the roles of the husband under two main headings. I hope you remember what they were leadership and love. Those are the two big things that a husband needs to be doing for his wife, providing leadership 
and providing love. And today we'll consider the biblical role of the wife, and I think we can also divide our time today into two primary portions as well, two primary roles of the wife, and they are these, support and submission. Those are two, the two big things I think the Bible emphasizes that a wife should be and do, to support her husband and then also to submit to his leadership. And so we'll look at those in turn, and we'll begin with the call to support. And to see this most clearly, we need to return once again this morning all the way back to the very early chapters of the Bible, indeed to the second chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 2. Turn there with me now. Genesis chapter 2, and as you're turning, I hope it's beginning to turn over in your mind how vital are these early chapters of the book of Genesis for understanding the world in which we live and the ways in which God has called us to live in it. These are incredibly important chapters for a number of reasons, and one of the bits that Genesis 2 helps us understand is the wife's calling to help or to support her husband. Read it with me now. In verses 15 through 23, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And the first thing we need to notice here is that the wife from the very beginning is called to a support role in relationship to her husband, not a lead role. Eve was sent, Eve was created, Eve was designed to be Adam's helper. And we saw last week from the fact that Adam was created first and from the fact that he was given a job to do in verse 15 and a moral charge to keep in verses 16 and 17 before ever this helper was granted to him, we saw from the responsibilities that Adam had already been given that Eve's role of helper was not to come in and help him the way a teacher helps a pupil or the way a mother helps a child from a position of authority, but that Eve was sent to help Adam in a support role like a nurse to a doctor. And so the helper role of the wife is a role of support. She is called to come alongside her husband and to help him achieve the task that God has given to him as the leader of the family. And we see those tasks for Adam in verses 15 through 17. And let's notice again that the husband needs the help. Verse 18, the Lord God said... It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper. The man may be the leader in this husband-wife relationship, but it's not good for him to go it alone. He still 
needy. He still requires help. And it's good that we men remember this. And it's good if those of you who are wives appreciate that that makes the role of helper that you play incredibly valuable. To return to our analogy, the doctor may have the final authority and the greatest responsibility in the hospital and in the care of the patients, but where would all the doctors be without the support of their nursing staff? So this support role is a needed role on the husband's part. And then on the wife's part, notice still in verse 18 that she has been designed for the role. I will make him a helper suitable for him. I will make him a helper, and I will make him a helper that is suitable, that is compatible, that fits him. In other words, God designed woman with the needs of a husband in mind. God designed woman to fill the precise role of helper, of support that the man is in need of. In other words, God didn't just make a woman any old way and then look and see that the man was alone and think, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll assign this lady over here to help this man whom I've created. No. He created the man, and he created the man in such a way that he need not be alone, and he looked at the man's need, and then he created a woman, not separately from that need, but specifically in order to meet that need, to be suitable to the man's vulnerabilities. Men and women are different. And in more ways, of course, than just anatomy. And all of that, all of that difference, anatomy and otherwise, is by God's design. And one of the reasons, lady, why he, ladies, why he designed you the way you are with your distinctly feminine qualities was so that you would fit the support role that the man he created was going to need. You are purpose-built to use modern technology. And that beautifully explains so many of the differences between the sexes and it elevates the level of your calling ladies now let me give you an an illustration if you had to i imagine that most of you could open a paint can with a butter knife someone in this room perhaps has done that at some point but they have these cool little gadgets at home depot that have been precisely engineered with a handle at the top and a bent tip at the end and just the right length of lever space so that you can quickly, flawlessly open a paint can with very little trouble at all. They work far better than the butter knife, I assure you. And I also assure you that when God made woman, when God made you women, he didn't design you as a butter knife and then ask you to spend your life opening a paint can. Not for a moment. He designed woman like that marvelous little can opener at Lowe's to correspond precisely to the task to which he had called her. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Now, I know that women are far more valuable and far more complex than paint can openers, just like I know that men are far more valuable and complex than paint cans. So please don't go home today thinking that what I'm saying is that women are somehow just simple tools that have no more value than doing what the man needs them to do in a pinch. I'm not saying that. It's just an analogy. Remember. But the analogy is apropos, even if it's over simple. 
Because in all the far more complex and beautiful ways that fit our humanity created in the image of God, the fact remains that God has created man and woman just as he wished and that the woman fits both God's hand at one end and the paint can qualities of her husband at the other end by design. And so the role of support is not only one that the husband needs, but it is one for which the woman has been designed. But then we need to go on and ask, what does that support look like? And I want you to notice several things beginning still here in Genesis 2. What does support by a wife from a wife look like? Well, notice first of all here that the woman is to support her husband in his calling. In his calling. Back in verse 15... When Adam was still alone in the garden, at least alone in terms of human companionship, God had already given him a calling. God had already given him a job, a vocation. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. God's given Adam a vocation. And then God comes along in verse 18 and he creates a helper for him. And it stands to reason, it seems to me, that one of the things God expected Eve to help Adam with was his calling, his vocation to keep and cultivate the garden. Indeed, in chapter 1, verse 28, when we get sort of the summary version of all this condensed down briefly, you find that God commanded both of them to subdue the earth and to rule over the rest of creation, in which task, again, according to chapter 2, Eve was to be Adam's helper. And so, wives... It seems to me that part of your role in your husband's life is to support him in his vocation, in his God-given calling, in the work that God has given him to do. Now, depending on circumstances and gifting and time and children at home, sometimes that role of help will be more hands-on, actually helping him with the work itself. Other times it may be more a role of being interested in what he does and praying for his success in it and other behind-the-scenes types of things. But however it is, the wife supports her husband in the matter of his life's calling. I wish I'd written it down because I can't remember who related this or even the precise details, but I ran across an anecdote some while back of a woman who was asked, what does your husband do? And her answer was something like, well, it has something to do with machinery, although I'm not sure exactly. And the person who was relating that story was aghast, and rightly so, because how can you support your husband in his calling, his God-given vocation, if the two of you haven't even talked about it enough for you to even have a layman's idea of what it is he does all day? Now, I don't think that any of you ladies are at that extreme, but... I don't want you to be anywhere near that extreme. Know what your husband does. Pray for his work. Let him talk to you about it so you can pray better. Assist him with it if that's feasible. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. Then the Lord God said, I will make him a helper. Let me also just say briefly that you can make application of this to your husband's calling in the church as well ladies whether it be his calling to serve in some ministry role or to teach a class or especially if he's called to the office of elder and or deacon this is part of his god-given calling as well and a significant part of your god-given calling is to support him in it 
One of the greatest examples that I can think of in this regard applies to both a man's vocational calling and his call to serve in the church is the example of Bethan Lloyd-Jones in the early part of the last century. Bethan, her, her maiden name was Phillips. She was a precocious young lady. Indeed, she was a medical doctor way back in the 1920s at a time when I would presume there were very few female medical doctors. But there she was, qualified in that great vocation. And yet when Martin came along, also a medical doctor, and wanted to marry her and to become a preacher of the gospel, Bethan's daughter said in a recent documentary that there was never any doubt in her mind that her calling was going to be to leave her career and support her husband in this calling of his. She saw the role of a wife, in other words, as the calling above all other callings. The role of supporting her husband's work was even more important than continuing in her own. If you're interested, you can read about her life as the suitable helper of the great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones in a fairly recent biography called Far Above Rubies. And I know that the example that she sets by leaving this lucrative career is countercultural, and I know that it sounds misogynistic in our culture for me to urge women to follow that 90 years later, but the Bible says that God created Eve not as a cultivator of the land by herself or in and of herself, but as the helper to the man whom he had already assigned the task. And so women are created to support their husbands in their callings. But then notice also, and maybe more importantly, she's to support her husband in his walk with God. Still in Genesis 2, in his walk with God. I glean this now from where we are told in verses 16 and 17 that God gave Adam a moral charge to keep. You can eat these things, but you can't eat these certain things, and if you do, you will die. That was a moral commandment. That was the commandment that Adam had to pay attention to. So God gave him a moral charge to keep. And then the very next thing we're told after God gave him a moral charge to keep is that it's not good for him to be alone. Isn't that interesting? Moses, who wrote Genesis, doesn't connect the dots, but I think it's at least worth considering whether part of what God had in mind when he said it's not good for the man to be alone is, I've given him this moral charge to keep, now let me not leave him to do it by himself. Let me send him a helper who will help him keep that charge. And so I conclude that part of Eve's role was not only to help Adam to tend the Garden of Eden in verse 15, but also to cultivate the garden of his own soul in verses 16 and 17. In other words, to put it simply, instead of giving Adam the forbidden fruit, which she did, of course, in chapter 3, Eve should rather have been helping him stay away from it. She should have been helping him strive to please God. Now the failure cuts both ways because as we saw last week, God held Adam responsible even though Eve was the first one to eat the fruit, which means that Adam should have been helping her too so that she didn't eat the fruit either. But as Adam's helper and from that position as the support of her husband, Eve could have had a role in keeping Adam from sin instead of leading Adam to sin. And she blew it. Don't you blow it, ladies. Your husband, yes, is the leader in the home, and this extends to spiritual things as it does to all other things, so that he is your spiritual leader and not the other way around. And yet, you are his spiritual helper. 
his support. And so you can and you should sometimes speak to him kindly about his anger or about the way he writes people off or about dishonesty in his life or whatever it may be. And you can and you should help him honor the Lord by means of all sorts of positive reinforcement too. And especially... 1 Peter, 1, 1 Peter 3 tells us you should help him honor the Lord by means of your example. Now we'll come back to 1 Peter 3 in a little bit where the wife is urged to win her disobedient husband over without a word. And we'll talk about what that means and how I can quote that verse and still say that there is a, wife, a place for a wife to show her husband his sin. But for now, know this. The Christian wife is a spiritual helper to her husband. And there is a lot of help for him to receive if she'll offer it in a gentle and humble way. And so the wife supports her husband in his calling. She supports him in his walk with God. And then she also supports him in the third place in his spiritual leadership of the family. In his spiritual leadership of the family. By which I mean very simply that since your husband is called to lead you and your children spiritually, support him in that role, ladies. Encourage him in it. Thank him when he's doing well in it. Reinforce his successes with praise. Reinforce his leadership by not undermining it with the children, either by your bad attitude towards him in front of them or by playing by a different set of rules when dad's not around. Support your husband by supporting his leadership in the home. And then support him also by means of what we might simply call moral support. Moral support. Be his shoulder to cry on, his listening ear, the one who reads scripture to him when he's too distraught to read it to himself, the one who prays for him in his trials, even aloud sometimes so that he knows that you're doing it, the one who just plainly and simply loves him, as Paul commands in Titus 2.4. Or to use another example, be everything for your husband in this realm of moral support be everything for your husband that the wife of Job was not. Do you remember Job's wife? After they'd lost their fortune and all their ten children, and after Job had lost his health too, her quote-unquote support for him was to tell him to curse God and die. And I suspect that that blow, losing the support of his suitable helper, was just as tough as some of the others. And so this woman stands on the pages of Scripture alongside Eve as a wife who really blew it. Don't you blow it, ladies. Support your husband. Encourage your husband. God has made you suitable to him, and he will help you be his moral support if you will but commit to do it and ask the Lord to give you daily grace for doing so. So we're still under the first of two main headings, which is that one of the wife's two key roles in relationship to her husband is to support him. Support him in his calling, support him in his walk with God, support him in his leadership in the family, grant him all the requisite moral support that he needs. And then before we leave this first part of the sermon, we need, yes, ladies, to look at one of the most famous of all the women of the Bible. Some of you like her, some of you are intimidated by her. You all know her by the same name, the Proverbs 31 woman. So I want you to turn with me to Proverbs 31 now, where we'll begin reading in verse 10 and read all the way down through the end of the chapter. Proverbs 31, 10 through 30. 
1. We're thinking about the wife who supports her husband. An excellent wife who can find, for her worth is far above jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. She looks for wool and flax and works with her hands in delight. She is like merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. She rises also while it is still night and gives food to her household and portions to her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. From her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She girds herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She senses that her gain is good. Her lamp does not go out at night. She stretches out her hands to the distaff, and her hands grasp the spindle. She extends her hands to the poor, and she stretches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of the snow for her household, for all her household are clothed with scarlet. She makes coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them and supplies belts to the tradesmen. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she smiles at the future. She opens her mouth in wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and bless her, her husband also, and he praises her, saying, Many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her the product of her hands and let her work praise her in the gates. Now, there are a few things to notice here about the wife's role of supporting her husband, and we'll notice each of them briefly. One is simply that Proverbs 31, notwithstanding all that we've said both this week and last, about the husband being the primary breadwinner and about the wife supporting the career of her husband. Nevertheless, Proverbs 31 does speak of the woman selling wares in verse 24 and buying property in verse 16 and collecting earnings in verse 16 also. So that it's not out of the question that a wife could ever work outside the home or that she could contribute to the family finances. This wife, at least, seems to have offered her household and her husband financial support as well. And so there's something to say about a wife being industrious and earning income where that's needed or possible. And then these verses are also a reminder to us, though, that just because the wife's primary calling is to support her husband in his calling does not mean that she has no pursuits and no projects and no plans of her own. She considers a field and buys it. From her earnings, she plants A vineyard, verse 16, or verse 20, she extends her hand to the poor and she stretches out her hands to the needy. So here's a woman who has both monetary projects going on and she's got ministry projects going on as well. And some of us need to hear that well, perhaps, so that we free our wives to do some other things that God has given them to do also. But I suspect that a larger number of us need to take even more notice of the fact that in a passage of 22 verses... Only two of them, less than 10%, are dedicated to discussion of what we might call the woman's outside work, and that the far greater weight of the passage speaks to how she is a blessing inside her own home. Verse 11, the heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. Verse 12, she does him good and not evil all the days of her life. Verse 15, she rises also while it is still night and gives food to her household. 
Verse 21, she is not afraid of the snow for her household, for all her household are clothed with scarlet. Verse 23, her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. Verse 27, she looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Verse 28, her children rise up and bless her, her husband also, and he praises her. So you can see that this excellent woman, whose excellence extends even outside the home, is nevertheless even more invested on what, into what goes on inside the home. So much of what is said about her has to do with her husband, her children, her household, which dovetails exactly with Paul's instructions in Titus 2.5 that women should be workers at home. And I want you to consider that carefully, women, whether you work outside the home or whether you don't. Ask yourself, can it be said of me, she is truly a worker at home? She looks well to the ways of her household. The heart of her husband trusts in her. She gives food to her household. Her children rise up and bless her. And will you, ladies, be willing to do whatever it takes even if that means foregoing some or all of your outside of the home kinds of work? Will you be willing to do whatever it takes in order to attend to your higher calling of looking well to the ways of your household? That's the first thing, wives. God has designed you as helpers. He has fashioned you for the role of support. And though that doesn't mean you can't work outside the home or that you shouldn't have pursuits of your own, there is a reality that you mustn't do these secondary callings to the neglect of your highest calling, which is to support your husband and any children that God gives you. And God forbid that any of us go and do other things in order to escape from the duties of the home intentionally. An excellent wife who can find For her worth is far above jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and bless her, her husband also, and he praises her. And all of that falls under this first category of the wife's role of support. But then our second main heading, the other primary role of the wife, which is really a corollary to this first one, is that the wife is given the task in her marriage not only of support, but corollary to that and flowing out of that, she's also given the role of submission. Submission. Now let's just begin by walking through the texts of Scripture that teach that principle of the wife submitting to her husband. And we'll look at them in the order in which they appear in the New Testament because I want you to follow along with me and see each of them with your own eyes. So first, turn with me to that famous passage in the book of Ephesians and chapter 5. Ephesians 5, 22 through 24. He's just talked about being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And then he says in verse 22, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. That's Ephesians 5. And then turn over just a couple of books to the book of Colossians. We'll look at one verse in chapter 3, verse 18. 
So Colossians 3.18. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And then keep turning to the right to the book of Titus and to chapter 2. Titus 2, we'll read verses 3, 4, and 5. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips or enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dis. Honored. And then finally, 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6, where we began some time ago. Now, 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6, In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right." without being frightened by any fear. Now, I'll read all four of those passages to you, first of all, because I want you to be sure and see how prevalent this theme of submission is. It's not just in one or two places. It's consistently asserted throughout the New Testament in four different places from two different apostles and with various other teachings attached to it. We have this one and the same teaching again and again and again. Namely, that a chief duty of the wife is to submit to or be in subjection to her husband. And what does that mean? Well, it means simply that the wife is to follow the husband's lead and to do what he's asking her to do. And to do it, as we saw in First Peter, with a gentle and quiet spirit and not with rolled eyes or sighs of protest. Now... I know all about the exceptions of, well, what if my husband asked me to rob a bank, right? Has anybody's husband ever asked him to rob a bank? Good. What if he asked me to be complicit in the abuse of our children? There are exceptions, just like the exception in the book of Acts, in which the apostles had to obey God rather than men. There are exceptions, but the Bible doesn't really dwell much on the exceptions. It dwells on the general rule, and the general rule is wives be submissive to your own husbands. That doesn't mean your husband's plans will always turn out right. Doesn't mean that he's always wiser than you are. Doesn't mean that you don't have the privilege in a gentle way of posing possibilities that he hasn't thought of or asking him for a reprieve of something he's asked you to do nicely. It doesn't mean, men, that you're allowed to lord this authority over your wife and be unreasonable in what you ask or ask that which is unbiblical. But again, when speaking about this matter, Peter and Paul don't major on these caveats on the fine print, so to speak. They major on the general big principle of submission, and we will do well to do the same. 
And so with that said, I want now just to comb back through those four passages that we read together a moment ago and notice some of the qualities of submission that are discussed, some truths that the apostles highlight about this simple concept of wives submitting to their husbands. So number one, I want you to see in Colossians 3.18, you can turn there with me once again, Colossians 3.18, I want you to see that submission in the first place is fitting. Submission is fitting. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. In other words, if we understand the Lord and what he's about, we will see that a wife submitting to her husband fits the Lord's paradigm. And not only because it's reiterated four times over in the New Testament, but because of what we've been seeing in Genesis 2 as well. If, in other words, God made Adam first and gave him certain responsibilities and then created Eve to be his helper, then it only makes sense, it's only fitting, to use Paul's word here, if the helper doesn't try and usurp authority, if the helper actually seeks to function as a helper, if she submits, in other words, to her God-appointed leader. Submission, quite simply, is fitting. It's appropriate. It's proper when we consider the way in which God has designed man and wife. That's the first thing. And then turn back over to 1 Peter 3. We'll stay there for a few minutes. And notice in the second place that submission is not only fitting, it's winsome. Submission is winsome. Look specifically at verses 1 and 2. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. And you see why I call submission winsome? Because Peter says sometimes submission, chastity, verse 2 also, and respect, verse 2, sometimes these things can be far more convincing to win over an erring husband than your words. Be submissive to your own husband so that if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won. Now, I said earlier that a wife, as her husband's spiritual helper, should sometimes show him the error of his ways, and I believe that. So how do I square that with these two verses where she's told to win him over without a word? Well, put simply, it seems to me that 1 Peter 3 is speaking to a wife, either whose husband is an unbeliever or whose husband has hardened his heart for the time being so that being disobedient to the word is his normal paradigm of life. And therefore, he's not listening to her. He's an unbeliever, or he's just hardened his heart, and so he's not listening to her. And therefore, she should just say, you know what, I'm going to win him over by my attitude rather than by my words. I don't think, in other words, that Paul is forbidding a wife from ever trying to win her husband from disobedience to obedience by means of her words. I think what he is doing, though, is saying when words won't get through, sometimes a submissive and respectful attitude will Sometimes if your husband sees you submitting to him, as God has said, his heart might soften to the matter of his own submission to God. And if he's lost, well then, if he sees that this Jesus thing in your life is is making you a much better wife, maybe God will use that to cause him to think that he needs the Jesus thing himself. 
And it will have been your submission, ladies, perhaps far more than your words, that will have been so winsome. And so submission is fitting and it's winsome. And then thirdly, still here in 1 Peter 3, submission is beautiful. It's beautiful. In verses 3 through 5, your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Now we see here, of course, just as an aside, that submission is not merely an outward behavior. It is that, but it's more than that. Submission includes the hidden person of the heart. In other words, the best submission, as we alluded to earlier, is not done with rolled eyes or sighs of protest or gritted teeth, but with a heart that is gentle and quiet, a heart that's biblically feminine, in other words, and therefore submits submissively, (laughs) submits gently and quietly. And all of this, back to my main point here, is that it's beautiful when a woman does this. Submission is a wife's adornment, we're told in verse 5. It's more beautiful than her hair, than her jewelry, than her clothing. Indeed, ladies, you might even ask yourself, what would happen in my marriage? How beautiful would I be in my husband's eyes if I worked as hard at simply doing what he's asking me to do as I do at picking out clothes for myself and tending to my hair and putting on my makeup and trying to pick out the right jewelry that fits best with my ensemble. Submission is beautiful. Give your time to it. Number four, submission, still in 1 Peter 3, is sometimes difficult. Sometimes difficult. For in this way, verse 5, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Now, the fact that he mentions submitting without fear tells you that you might be tempted to be afraid to hand yourself over in submission to this man. But we can also tell that submission is difficult because, do you remember Sarah and Abraham? Sarah here is commended for submitting to her husband, and rightly so. But Peter, when he gets to verse 7 and addresses what a husband should be, doesn't commend Abraham. Because you may remember that Abraham twice passed off his wife as his sister so as to save his own skin from would-be suitors who might knock him off to get to her if they found out that he was her husband. Now, it's technically true. They were half-siblings. But Abraham conveniently left out the part about how he'd married his half-sister and that she was his wife because he wanted to protect his own hide. And thus, twice over the course of their marriage, those competing suitors took Sarah into their own homes, thinking she was merely Abraham's sister and intending to make her their wife, but leaving Abraham be because he had conveniently left out a part about the wedding vows and such not. You can read about those two terrible events in Genesis chapters 12 and 20. It was a horrible thing Abraham did and asked his wife to do. 
And yet somehow when Abraham is telling only half the truth and not the important half of the truth, first to Pharaoh and then to Abimelech, somehow Sarah kept her composure and she did not do what I probably would have done, which would be to join that woman, you remember Miracle Max's wife from The Princess Bride? Liar! That's what I would have said to Abraham. But she didn't do it. Somehow... Although this was one occasion on which I think we have agreed that it would have been okay for Sarah to have balked at her husband's instructions. This would have been one of those exceptions. Somehow she still called him Lord and submitted to him even in this. And Peter calls her an example. Perhaps precisely because the situation in which she was placed was so difficult. And so my point is submission is sometimes difficult even if your husband is not nearly as foolish as Abraham was on these two occasions. And it's difficult not only because we are sinners and therefore by nature some of us have a real hard time with anyone telling us what we should do, but submission is also difficult because as with Sarah, sometimes it means doing something that you just really don't think is wise. Something that you really just don't want to do. You would rather do it a different way. You think you have a better way to do it. Maybe you do have a better way to do it. And yet God is calling you to submit to your husbands. And yet, ladies, I doubt if any of your husbands has ever asked of you something as questionable as what Abraham did to Sarah. And so she's an example that even when what is asked of you is difficult and goes against your grain, submission is possible. And if you submit, verse 6, you don't have to be afraid because ultimately you are in the hand of God who calls you to submission rather than merely being in the hand of your husband to whom you submit. Submission is sometimes difficult. Fifthly, from Titus chapter 2, turn back there with me now, submission is a testimony. Look at those verses again, Titus 2, verses 3 through 5. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. So that the word of God will not be dishonored. That's why Paul is urging submission in this particular case. Because when a wife doesn't submit to her husband, people look at her poor example, and they say things like, see, Christians don't even follow their own book. She's not submitting to her husband, so why should we feel bad if we don't do what the Bible says about our sins? Now, that might be said even more so in a culture in which all women are expected to submit to their husbands, the kind of culture that ours used to be decades ago. In a culture like that, when a Christian is the one overstepping the pattern laid down all the way back in Genesis 2, then it causes everyone to take notice and to malign the seriousness of God's word. But even in a culture like ours where submission is a byword and where most women don't think they need to submit and would be glad to see you ladies not doing so, even these women, even though they don't submit to their husbands and even though they wish that you wouldn't, many of them have some understanding that your book tells you that you should. And so when you don't do it, when you buy into their values instead of the Bibles, the Bibles just knock down another peg in their eyes. I don't want to submit to his teachings on this. I don't think submission is the best thing for me, and apparently neither do the Christians, because look at what she gets away with. Look at how she rolls her eyes at her husband. 
They must not take the Bible as seriously as they say. But on the positive side, ladies, when you do submit to your husband, that's a testimony too, and in a good way. It gives your feministic friends, the ones that maybe don't even realize that they're swimming in a feministic ocean, it gives them one less piece of ground on which to stand in their insistence that submission is foolhardy because they see you doing it and they see the good fruits of it in your marriage and the Holy Spirit can use that alongside what they do know of the Bible and alongside an instinct that might still be somewhere in the bottom of their hearts from creation that their husband really is the head of their home and the Spirit might just bring these things together to convict them deep down that they need to turn to God even if you can't see that conviction on the surface. And of course, submission's a testimony too to your sisters in Christ here in these pews who find it difficult just the way you do and who need a godly example of someone joyfully entering into God's design for their marriage. And the testimony is perhaps most marked in your daughters, whom, ladies, you are putting through an 18-year intensive course in how to honor or not honor their own husbands someday. And so I say to you, ladies, as a testimony, so that the word of God will not be dishonored, be subject to your own husbands. Submission is fitting, it's winsome, it's beautiful, sometimes it's difficult, it is a testimony. And then finally, this morning, submission is a picture. Submission is a picture, and here's where we turn to Ephesians 5, one more time, verses 22 through 24, Ephesians 5, 22 through 24. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Now, it's a stunning thing, as we see in verses 25 and following, how Christ loved his bride and gave himself up for her to make her sparkling and beautiful for the great wedding day that is to come. And it's a beautiful thing when a husband loves his wife with a similar kind of self-sacrifice. But it's also striking, both in the marriage portrait and in the Christ-church relationship that it portrays, it's also striking to see the bride doing her part subjecting herself to her bridegroom. It's a splendid thing, in other words, when the church, whether we're talking about the universal church as a whole or the local assembly like this one, it's a splendid thing when the church is bowing the knee to Christ and submitting to Christ and doing things Christ's way. When she preaches what Christ says she should preach. When she is generous the way Christ says she should be generous. When she makes disciples of all the nations the way Christ commissioned her to do. We said last week that Christ found his bride in the gutter, in the mire of her sin, and he loved her even there. But he didn't leave her there. He brought her out and is making her beautiful. And part of those beauty treatments is to give her the ability and the want to to submit to him, her bridegroom, in everything. And if we love to see that change taking place in the church, in the bride of Christ, why Ever wouldn't we find it gorgeous when we see an individual marriage in which the bride is serving as a little thumbnail miniature of what the church is in all our glory. These marriages of ours, you see, are cosmic. 
Not because marriage is ultimate or because our marriages will last forever. Jesus says they won't. But they are cosmic because they point, or at least they're intended to point, to that which is ultimate and to that which will last forever. Namely, the marriage between Christ and his bride. And so your submission to your husbands, ladies, and your determination to really support him in all the ways we discussed earlier is a bigger deal than just whether or not you and your husband are going to have a nice relationship and whether or not your life is as comfortable as, or as self-actualizing as our culture tells you it should be. Your submission to your husband is cosmic. It is a portrait. It is like the logo of Christ and his church Put on your sleeve for the eyes of a watching world which needs the gospel so badly. And you can either wear that logo gladly and beautifully, or you can sort of submit and sort of make your own half-baked knockoff logo, which doesn't really do Christ and the church justice. Or you can wear the badge of the world and leave Christ off your sleeve altogether. But your life and your relationship to your husband is going to come with someone's logo printed on it. And I urge you to make it that of the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ loves you, Christian woman. He gave himself up for you in ways that the best of husbands cannot do. Indeed, he loved you and gave himself up for all the ways in which you have not lived up to the passages that have been opened up before us today. And that's hope-giving, isn't it? Because Christ loves you, you are neither condemned for the failures that have been brought to your attention today, nor are you doomed to repeat them. And so I urge you, by the power that is in the death of Christ, not to repeat them but rather to submit to your husband, not only for your husband's sake, who needs it and who will appreciate it, but for the sake of Christ, who commands you to do it, and who has died and risen again so that you can, and whose church is beautiful enough that the portraits of her ought to be so too. If your husband commissioned someone to paint a portrait of you ladies, and it came out looking like, I don't know, Maybe Miss Piggy or Miracle Max's wife or like Mrs. Olson with one of her sourpuss faces on a bad day in Walnut Grove. You wouldn't want that to be the portrait that he took under his arm to the office with him and plastered on his wall or made into the desktop image on his laptop, would you? You'd like him to have something a little more accurate and a little more flattering to present to his coworkers, I'd suspect. And so, ladies... Is it possible for you to think of handing over such an unflattering spiritual portrait of Christ or of Christ's bride to Christ? Would you like with the portrait of your life to give him that something that is ugly and doesn't represent his bride at all, something that is unflattering, or wouldn't you like to give him something that is flattering, something that is accurate to hang up as the portrait of his wife the church before the watching world? You are that portrait. Don't you want the portrait of submission that you paint in your marriage to be as beautiful as is Christ's church in her submission to her husband? The bride of Christ is no spiritual hag. She is no mule-headed woman always intent on going her own way. The bride of Christ is beautiful, adorned, 1 Peter 3, with the beautiful wardrobe of a gentle and quiet spirit and a submissive heart to her bridegroom. And as a part of that bride, ladies, you have the ability to portray her every day of your life in that way, in the portrait that you paint of beauty in your own marriage. 
And so I urge you to give yourself to this noble, beautiful calling. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands.